This is the eighth annual, the eighth annual Peacemakers Convocation. And since its inception in 2015, the Peacemakers Convocation has sought to highlight speakers who are engaged as peacemakers themselves in the important field of racial justice. And just as a reminder, the field of racial justice is important because it is close, first and foremost, to God's heart. Diversity was God's idea, and the whole scope and the whole movement of Scripture paints a stunning portrait of God's plan for amazing diversity that we can hardly ever imagine, combined with unparalleled unity and love. That is God's vision for a diverse world, for His diverse world. And yet, as we all well know, God's world is currently not as it ought to be. God's world is currently deeply broken, and far, far, far too often, instead of perfect unity, we instead see disunity brought about by injustice. Thus, the important work of engaging on God's terms and in God's way, the work of racial justice. And thus, the Peacemakers Convocation, again, started in 2015 as a seed of this vital work here at Sterling College. It's not everything, but we do believe that this convocation held annually on the first Friday in February is one important piece of that puzzle for our community here in little old Sterling, Kansas. And today's guest speaker, today's guest lecturer, stands squarely in the excellent tradition of the first seven peacemakers convocations. Delano J. Sheffield is a Kansas native who was born and grew up in Topeka. He attended the University of Kansas. Do we have some cheers or booze? I don't know. Rock chalk, Ethan, right down front. Delano attended the University of Kansas where he studied architectural engineering. He resides currently in Kansas City and was a longtime structural engineer for the company Blue Scope Steel in Kansas City. Delano has also served as a discipleship pastor in the local church and a network leader for Pastors Network Made to Flourish. He has served as an adjunct professor of Greek at a school in Kansas City and as an online adjunct instructor at none other than right here at Sterling College. That's right, Delano is already part of the Warrior family. Uh, he's currently pursuing his doctorate of ministry at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. And while he is doing this, he also splits his vocational time between coaching executives for the Department of Human Services for the state of Oregon in the matters of diversity, equity, inclusivity, and accessibility, and he also provides business coaching for the Artemis Group of Goodwill in Western Missouri and Eastern Kansas. Please, let's give Delano a warm warrior family welcome. Good morning. How's everybody doing? I'm told that you all get double credits for being here this morning. And I'm giving two for one credits for those who have at least 10 pages of notes. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So in the early 2000s, uh, my father, Harold Sheffield Sr., uh, came to Kansas City, and I took him to the newly remodeled Union Station. And he hadn't been there in almost over 50 years since he was a kid. But as he walked through, I, I saw, I got a glimpse of what my father looked like as a child as he meandered through the building with this uncanny smile on his face. He made his way to this diner called the Harvey House, which he had also been restored. And he told me this story about his grandmother, or my grandmother, excuse me. He said that as a child he went, but they weren't allowed to buy food. 
And um, my grandmother would slip around to the back of the building and find a way to purchase burgers from the restaurant. And I've heard some similar experiences from others, and I've often wondered why, at the very least, why anyone would want to withhold a burger from someone that they could sell it to. What is a person's belief about burgers, or really, what is a person's belief about people who are different to decide to not sell them a burger? Or more than that, what does it say about us that a person would say, well, you can eat these burgers, but you need to come to the back to get them? Now, some who are detached might conclude, well, at least they got a burger, Delano. You know, it's just a different door. And therein lies the issue or the question that we have to answer with respect to burgers. And not just burgers that we're talking about. We haven't even talked about education or seats or jobs or banks or pulpits and housing and drinking fountains pre-COVID. Nobody drinks from drinking fountains anymore. What is required of one's neighbor for basic human dignity. You all got a great unpacking uh, from the Micah text from E. Stephanie's uh, sermon a few weeks ago, and she saved me some time on the exegesis and background, so I want to lean into some thoughts about the result of that text. You know, based on our experiences, we get these reminders about how peacemaking is a continual work, and therefore a discipline that we are all growing in My uncle was a lawyer and the first African-American federal district judge in Richmond, Virginia since the Reconstruction era. I grew up around the Brown family of Brown versus the Board of Education. I attended the same church as them. And my mother was the first African-American teacher to ground me. So some accomplishments have a great way of reminding us that something was not right before that moment in time. And we know this is true because we serve and live in a kingdom that is already but has a lot of not yet. My aunt was the first African-American nurse in a Kansas public school because before that there were black nurses, but they weren't allowed to work in public schools. If there is a first, we have to ask what it was like before then. And if there was a first time possible, we have to remember that progress is not the same as arrival. So we're gospel-focused people, right? We understand that dignity and doing our best to care for others is not an ancillary issue. But quite honestly, we forget about that. In all our pressing calendar reminders and our fast-paced results-driven society where productivity is king and often how we determine flourishing, we forget that under that success and achievement and how long it's been since your last failure are these fundamental questions about what it means to be human. What does it mean to love and follow God? What keeps us from being justice, love, and mercy, humbly driven people, especially to those who don't look like us? You know, ideas have hands and feet. I do not need to ask you if you value oxygen. I merely only need to watch your chest move. If I watched you for hours and saw your chest moving, I would quickly conclude that your value of oxygen is not ancillary. Breathing, regardless of whatever else it is you have to do, is paramount to whatever it is else it is you have to do. Equity and peacemaking and racial reconciliation and justice and mercy and humility are great ideas, but there is a different type of living, a different kind of breathing that happens when they're not ancillary values. If someone looked at your life from outer space, they could only see your life. Would they see that part of society that you engage in and conclude without hearing a word you spoke that you are someone who espouses a life of learning to be equitable, to make peace, 
doing justice and mercy and humility, etc., to all cultures and people? Perhaps you are, and for that, that's great. You've, you've arrived. Fold up your notes, go and bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. But for the rest, rest of us, like you and like me, we need these reminders. We need to keep uh, learning to do a little better every day. And uh, perhaps you need this reminder for yourself, too. You know, I think there's number, numerous antagonists that happen to this, these opposers to life of peacemaking that are, but there's three in particular I want to focus on this morning because I really think they're important, not just because I'm speaking. I think they're important because they are countered by so many fundamental aspects of the gospel. What keeps me or you from being a person who embodies peacemaking, racial reconciliation, and striving for justice, loving mercy, walking humbly. What antagonists keep me from these ideas being in my hands and feet? The first one is an indifference to history. When I was younger, I used to quietly dread history, and I say quietly because my father taught history before he was a principal. And I took this U.S. history course, and the professor gave some truths I had heard of in the past, but something was very different about his approach. Um, he had a knack for really drawing light that these were people involved in this history. And not all the same types of people or group or uh, groups. It wasn't homogeneous individuals. Uh, the stories in this U.S. history took on value because the people took on value to me. When we do not have a value in people, we simultaneously don't hold value in their history. And when there is no value in their history, we typically default to two options. That indifference will either result in one, we attempt to get people to assimilate to our own values and history devoid of a, a context, irrespective of theirs, or two, and perhaps worse in some ways, we simply just don't care at all. Both of these stymies progress and sends all kinds of messages about who can be valued, who has say, who has the right to contribute, who does not, what life is about, who loves God and who doesn't, who, is, uh, who God loves and who's just being punished by him, and what it means to be human. The antagonizer makes us indifference to history, and the remedy is compassion. You must care about the story of other people as least as much as you care about your own story. Because it's hard to be helped, or really to help others, when you've already concluded that you know what's best in their circumstances. Context determines the type of compassion, just like context determines the meaning of Scripture. This is why Paul uses over 40 building terms to the Ephesians who take great pride in their architecture. And it's why he speaks of God's impartial judicial administration to those Romans who spend a lot of time in courtrooms. And it is why the Galileans can't get over Jesus being a carpenter. But today we forget that he did carpentry much longer than he did ministry. You have to care about where people come from because their experiences and their stories and what they have to say are of great, great value to you. We have to care about our collective histories because, as my mother would say, if you don't learn it, you're doomed to repeat it. We have to care because it's hard to remember something that you have not learned. And remembering is really a, a gospel fundamental. Rooted right in the ordinances of the church, of the Christian church, is the value of history and the principle and joy of remembering at a table for eating, which is in itself tells us what is common to humanity is to thirst and to hunger, Jesus gathers his disciples together. He instills this reminder that remembering is tied to the gospel. He says, as often as you do this future, do this present 
in remembrance of me, the past. He takes the past, present, and future and wraps it together in one moment and reminds us in this Passion Week that we should live lives of compassion. We must be a people who are not indifferent to history or antagonistic or defensive or frail when the stories rub up against our comforts. But rather, with gracious ears, we let the present moment be seen in light of what has happened. And we, do this, we can do this without losing hope because we know that the gospel tells us where we're headed. The second antagonistic problem that we have to deal with is that we're oblivious to the truth. It is difficult to be disconnected from good or bad things of the present when we have a recognition of the past. You know, truth marches on. And not only the transcendent truth of God, but also the events and experiences, experiences that truly have happened. You know, my brother was in the army and he served in the Middle East during the first war with Iraq. And there was a period of time where we didn't hear from him as he was getting close to the end of his term. And I began to get worried if he was okay. And one day I heard this car in the driveway pull up and I knew that it was his car. I did not need to look out the window to know I immediately began to celebrate because I knew that he was home. Now, if I was oblivious to the sound, if I didn't care to listen, I would have missed the implications of the truth that my brother was home. Now, notice this. It would not have made it any less true if I did not engage with the hearing, if I didn't listen or look for the right sights and sounds out, coming out through the window. I would have just missed out. And sin is a lot of things, one of which is that it is sticky, and it pushes our scarcity and zero-sum mentality to the point of becoming an idol. It sticks to everything. In Genesis 3, it stuck to, uh, ground, to the ground, making it curse. It stuck to fig leaves. In chapter 4, it's going to stick to offerings. In chapter 11, it's going to stick to a building development project. In all these cases, there's a scarcity mentality, and the result in all those is this attempt to cover There'll be a scarcity of God's grace, so Adam has to cover himself with fig leaves. There's a scarcity uh, in offerings, so Cain has to kill his brother. There's not enough protection for Cain, so Cain needs a seal. There's not enough notoriety for the Babel citizens, so they go on this endeavor to build this skyscraper, mud scraper, really. And this is all the beginning of humanity dealing with sin and scarcity. Soon, tribes will be at odds with each other, and families from every type of group with the name Ite will be an enemy to each other. Our defensiveness rises when truth rubs against our perceived security. In a fallen world, we have numerous scriptures that demonstrate, the ability of, uh, uh, that demonstrate our ability to remain unaware to the differences of people around us. And guess what? Race is one of those differences. And the results of discrimination is usually that someone gets left out, Someone gets judged, someone's condemned, and in many cases, they're left without the bare necessities that others have. It is very difficult to get justice when we are oblivious to the truth. Dr. Roberts is my mentor and senior strategist at the Dupree Center of Fuller Seminary. He defines justice this way. Look at this, and I think it's up on the overhead. Biblical justice ensures that all people receive their due as beings created in God's image called to obey God's will, and embraced by God's merciful love. Biblical justice is grounded on the just and gracious character and activity of God and shaped by God's revelation in Scripture and, supremely, in Jesus Christ. Biblical justice, whether legal or social, is expressed in right relationships and embodied in right structures, with special attention given to those in society least likely to be treated justly. 
Biblical justice, the ground floor of God's shalom, reconciles what's divided, makes right what is wrong, and enables all people to flourish. Let me circle back on that last part so we're not oblivious to it. Biblical justice, whether legal or social, is expressed in right relationships and embodied in right structures, with special attention given to those in society least likely to be treated justly. Biblical justice, the ground floor of God's shalom, reconciles what's divided, makes right what is wrong, and enables all people to flourish. The culprit to a lack of peacemaking is to be oblivious to the truth. The, re- the remedy is a, ro- a, ro- a, excuse me, a robust view of the gospel where Jesus Christ is truly reconciling all things back to himself, not to us. Where We're not only seeing those words that we've seen in the hymn, no more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow as far as the curse is found. But we go looking for understanding on how far the curse is gone, and we go looking to extend truth and grace and mercy. It is a robust gospel where in the kingdom there is literally enough, so I don't need to rob others to preserve my own identity, and where my flourishing is quite possibly dependent on other people's flourishing also, especially to those who don't look like me. The third antagonizer is a myopic view of mercy. Just to recap, peacemaking is stymied when someone has, number one, an indifference to history. Number two is oblivious to the truth. And lastly, we have a myopic view of grace and mercy. I'm always astonished at the text in Luke 19 where Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem. And because we know he's all-knowing, he knows just what he's looking at and the immediate circumstances. And he's not indifferent to history, nor oblivious to truth. He understands what he's looking at. And Luke says as he approaches the city that he wept over it, sees the city, knows the history, knows all the backdrop of what's happened. And in that moment, overwhelmed by what he sees and knows has happened up to that moment and what is happening then and there, our Savior weeps over the city. Because he cares, he says in verse 42, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. What is intriguing about this is he knows their history. He's not oblivious to the truth or the truth of their circumstances, and he recognizes that they're myopic. They don't see the wide picture of what's happening. They don't see it properly. And instead of walking into the city to destroy it, He essentially walks into the city to be destroyed. If we understand the kind of mercy and gracious eyes that God looks at us with in this very moment, it's very difficult to withhold grace and mercy from others. What is more, God is not withholding mercy from us who do wrong every day. Yet we withhold mercy from others who've done nothing wrong by simply having a different color. What am I saying? Your ability to be an active and maybe even soundless advocate for peacemaking and racial reconciliation is going to be particularly based on a compassion for other people's history, a robust view of this gospel, and a clear perspective of the gracious eyes that you are looked at in this very moment. Because the conclusion is not merely to know some great facts about African Americans or Native Americans or Asian Americans or Caucasian Americans or women. To know some great facts about it is great. Or some people who don't look like you is great.
but it is to actively engage in living this question of what would God ask of you that you cannot do on your own? To weep over injustice, but then also to walk inside the city. I love King as much as everybody. Everybody like Martin Luther King? Kind of quiet. A little worried about that. All right, just playing. But I love his mentor. I'm, I'm a, a big proponent of we see somebody who's solid, want to know their history, want to know their history before their history. Who's, who's, who's King's mentor? One of them is Howard Thurman. He states in Footprints, Footprints of a Dream, the story of church for the fellowship of all peoples. This quote, I think, really gets at it. The movement of the Spirit and a Spirit of God in the hearts of men and women often calls them to act against the spirit of their times or causes them to anticipate a spirit which is yet in the making. In a moment of dedication, they are given wisdom and courage to dare a deed that challenges and to kindle a hope that inspires. When's the last time you had to be courageous? When's the last conversation where you had to be courageous? And maybe here are some things that you didn't necessarily want to hear, but you had to embrace them as being true. Where you weren't worried about your identity because you know that it's secure in Christ. Where you were able to say what you know needed to be said, but also to be able to hear things that maybe were a little difficult to hear. Why does that matter? What, 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 why this act of kindling hope? If Christ, and we believe this to be true, is indeed reconciling all things and our ability to see each other with the dignity that we deserve is being resolved, and if Christ was actually serious when he told the first disciples that you're going to do even greater works than I did, then guess what? Your degree in business, sports management, or athletic training, or education is far more important than you could have ever imagined. Great, you're going into those degrees. That work is especially important. But how does that fit in what God wants you to do in the over-cosmic, the cosmic story of what God's accomplishing? I really believe Sterling is not preparing people just for the pews. I believe they're developing creative and thoughtful leaders who understand a maturing faith. It may be that your first step to truth is that you're, you're going to recognize that your whole life you will have these opportunities to engage with people who don't look like you, who don't have the same background as you, who don't have the economic background you have who don't have the same story, may not be from the same country, may not be the same height as you are. You might, some of you all might not be as tall as me someday, right? But the fact of the matter is these moments can be especially valuable when you recognize that it's no coincidence in God's grand story that you've crossed paths with them. And guess what? Difference does not have to mean that they are a problem or need to be like you to be valued. While you're here and when you graduate, the thoughtfulness should be, how am I using these moments to bring together uh, the way God wants them to be? be? How, how, how am I using these moments to bring things together the way God intends them to be? It is not sufficient to get the grade and complete the program, to get the great job, to move on to your next steps and goals. That's great. But how does this fit into God's justice? So Harold Sheffield walks into Harvey's and we sat down and we got a burger. It was great. It was a really good burger. It's not the best burger place in Kansas City, but it, it was pretty good. Uh, that's great, right? That's progress. That's a good thing. Not so fast. Not so fast. Are we sufficient 
with the progress to walk in the front door and eat a burger? Is that really enough? My dad could go in now after waiting 50 years and knowing the experience of having to go to the back to get a burger that comes off the same skillet. Is that enough? What if Harvey's at Union Station could have been Harold's at Union Station? I, I would have got discounts, if nothing else. It would have been good for that reason. The truth is, but for a lot of reasons, a lot of economic reasons, other things, he's not sufficient to get a loan at the bank at the same rate and draw the same clientele that Harvey did. And the fact of the matter is, you have privilege. All of us have some privilege, otherwise we wouldn't be able to talk about grace. But you have privilege to put other people in a position to flourish like you are, especially those who don't look like you. It might be that their flourishing leads to your flourishing. But if you don't see the city, you're going to miss out. It's great to weep over the things around us, and we should sometimes. We should take that pause and that Sabbath moment to look at what we see around us and to be overwhelmed with what's happening and weep over it. It's great to weep over those things, but amid and after the weeping, we look with gracious eyes, and then it's time to move. It is understandable to be tired or overwhelmed by the things that we see that seem to be insurmountable. We indeed are full of frailties and fallibilities. We can fail, but we can still ask, what is justice? And maybe we don't have all the answers, but we do know the one who does, right? And God tends to impartially open doors and provide gifts to those who habitually knock, seek, and ask for the things that he values. So you're not going to know how to solve every circumstance. You may not have the solution to removing redlining laws that are still on the books in a lot of cities today or creating better recruiting practices or hiring practices or know how to fix food deserts or uh, predatory lending or other things that happen uh, around us that we see. You may not have all the solutions to that, but you have to admit that you are there in that moment and in that time. And if you are in that moment in time, you play a part in it. And you can remember that those issues exist every day. They're there every day. Even if you don't recognize it, they're still there. And the fact of the matter is, you can care about the relevance of it even if it doesn't affect you directly. So we learn that we should be learning each moment, in every moment, in every way, in all of our privilege, what, it, what does it look like to ensure that the person next to me receives their due as human? What does it mean to bestow dignity on a person when I go to the restaurant? What does it mean if I get the job in a position to help others to maybe be able to have that same kind of work? What does it mean when I get extra? What do I do with that? How do I become a person, as Paul said, that the comfort that we receive, we comforts others with the same comfort we've received from God? How can I do right by the person who is there? Asking those kind of questions, we move, remove ourselves from becoming indifferent to history, oblivious to truth, recognizing the grace that we, and mercy we receive that right now. And we make the decision to go. And we just go. Thank you. Let's pray. God, I want to say thank you first and just uh, this time for us to be together to gather as um, believers who are, are learning. We are learning what it means to follow your son. And we thank you for uh, the fact that he is the truth and is the way and the life, but he also demonstrated what this life is going to look like as we um, become conformed to his image. 
Thank you that it is um, something that you have not given up on and that you engage with us and are growing. And I pray and I, I leave this blessing with uh, every student, every professor, every administrator who's here. Um, as we go from this place, both weeping and rejoicing into our respective vocations, I pray that you will um, remind each of us that you are truly Emmanuel, and that's not just the title, that you go with us and you are going before us as well. Um, help us to see the things that we need to see with uh, gracious eyes, to see truth the way that it needs to be seen and not to be oblivious to it. And um, bless every heart and soul as we head from this place to be a blessing to every heart and soul that they engage with. Amen.